Welcome to the Campion College podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences, and more. Join us now for an interview with Campion College President Dr. Paul Morrissey and Senator for South Australia, Senator Corey Bernardi. The good Senator has been here this evening for our formal hall and has given a great uh, talk to our students about uh, some of the challenges of public life and, uh, and being a public person and, and some of the principled positions he takes and, and the challenges that involves. Um, I thought I might ask you, uh, Senator, this evening um, in this podcast, what, what, what drove you into, into public life? What were some of the things that uh, drew you towards uh, the political life, the public life? I often reflect on this, and it comes back to adversity, if I can say that. When I, when I left school, my only goal was to row in five Olympic Games. Uh, that was what I wanted to do. And I hurt my back, so I was denied that opportunity. Whether I could have ever have done it or not is another question. And so I thought, okay, you recover from that life goal being taken away and you do something else. And then another thing happened to me. I, I got hit by a car and, and you know, I was lucky to survive. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, maybe that other life goal's been taken away as well. So I went back home uh, to Adelaide. I was overseas at the time. I went home to Adelaide and thought, well, I'll buy a business and I'll get sensible. So I bought a business and before I knew it, after a couple of years in this business, um, I started getting ill and it turned out I had tuberculosis. And so I was put in hospital in isolation for nearly a year and I was 24. Four or 25 and you get a lot of time to think when you've got a contagious disease and no one wants to come and visit you even the tv guy didn't want to come in and um i I remember the result there was that what i've been pursuing in my life which you know you could loosely argue were wine women and song uh were not where i wanted to spend the rest of my life and uh, that money wasn't my motivator anymore um i wanted to actually do something that I thought was worthwhile. So what did I think was worthwhile? Volunteering with a political party. And I did. I was a member of the Liberal Party, but I, I started to volunteer, started to get involved. And a couple of years later, I was the president. I was 28. Um, I'd been married in the interim, and uh, I spent two years as, as president. And then I stood down because you know, two children had been born, and I thought, you know, I needed a break from, from this, all the time running my business. And five years after that, uh, they approached me again and said, now your children are at school. I was a part-time stay-at-home dad for uh, those five years. Uh, They said, would you like to run for the Senate? And I said, I'll do it as long as I don't have to change who I am. And I'd like to think I haven't changed. Maybe I've matured and, and things over the course of time. But I've certainly done it, approached it. In the in the manner that I'm not here for a long time, I'm here to to try and make the difference that I, I came here to do, um, and that's the short story of it. The, the the face of adversity has made me think about and led me to a position about what I really believe is is worthwhile, and I've been blessed with so many things, uh, personally, uh, financially, um, and I have uh, one of the greatest blessings I have is that I'm a resilient fella and I can put up with a lot and uh, politics is probably pretty suited to that skill. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm struck with hearing your story which is an incredible sort of pathway to public life. It's unconventional. Of, yeah, very yeah. Un- 
conventional that uh, you often hear a, a critique of the political class today is that it's it's fairly monochrome that people you know enter politics pretty young and it's a fairly careerist path and there's not a lot of experience per se in the world before they enter politics and it seems to me that you've entered it in a different way do you think that provides you with a different perspective in the in the, as in your role as a yeah, senator absolutely i do i mean we've all got unique gifts and skills mm-hmm. every politician is and everyone in in any life you know they have these things that they bring to the table it doesn't matter whether you're an undertaker or a plumber or a publican or a lawyer but politics has become a career and and this is isolated from where i think it historically has the the, the path is you go to university you stack your young liberal branch or your young labor branch you go and work for a politician you stack his branches or her branches for them until you get the numbers to overthrow them you hop into parliament and you climb the greasy pole as quickly as you possibly can and then the mission is to stay there until you can't until someone does it to you um and that was never my goal I, i literally i was 36 when i went in and i thought in my mind i will do 14 years of this i will do two terms i will then be 50 or so, 51, and um, I will have another career. Uh, and so that I've always had this attitude that, that it doesn't matter. I'm not here to, to achieve high office. I'm here to, to do some stuff. And I've enjoyed it. It's not been without its, its pain, but I deliberately chose this. And, um, uh, and I still think it's a very worthwhile endeavour. I'd like to think there's a legacy through the, my political party that might live on after my political use by date is up. But, um, you know, never die wondering. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, I was struck in your presentation tonight to the students, you spoke about your headmaster and, you, and spoke about how at school you perhaps wasted some of your years as you know, being educated and so on, but your headmaster was a great influence in your life. Can you say a bit why he was a great influence and perhaps any other big influences on you in terms of your... You know, growth as a human, but also in terms of your, you know, entering public life and, sure. and making contributions. Uh, um, I think the, the the biggest influence in my in my life was clearly my parents, uh, and you know, a lot of people don't appreciate their parents until their parents themselves. Um, and my father was a migrant here. He worked very very hard. My mother worked very hard. There was a traditional uh, aspect to our to our lives, and yet it wasn't. Um, wasn't always conventional, if I can put it like that. Uh, we were raised and baptised and, and um, confirmed in, in the Catholic faith, but we're not from a religious family. And yet, so I was always more spiritual than anyone else in, in our family. But at school, I went to a Methodist school, and at school, uh, the headmaster, Jeff Bean, who's in his 80s now, I hope, I hope he won't mind me saying that, he was a, a very skilled orator. He... he he had a beautiful way of speaking. I don't think he liked rowers very much. I think they gave him a tough time at Oxford. Um, but, you know, we, I guess I pushed lots of boundaries. And one thing st- stuck with me, because I, I'd get into trouble. Uh, and I wasn't alone, but I'd get into trouble. And, but he came up to me one day. He said, Corey, I've heard a report of someone smoking at the bus stop. And I went, oh, really, Mr. Bain? That's terrible. He says, yes, this report involved a very tall young man. Oh, really? That's awful. At bus stop 13 on the Burnside route in the morning. Oh, awful, Mr. And apparently this person's name is Corey. Now, would you know anything about that? 
<laughs> and I went, well, Mr. Bean, to be honest, I think I might know something about that. And he said this to me, which was so out of character. He says, sometimes I get the feeling you're a sneaky little so-and-so. And he used a term which, which was unparliamentary, is all I'll say. And I thought, I said, yes, I think you're right, Mr. Bean. I'll try to be less sneaky. Um, but that stuck with me because it gave me a side that, that it wasn't always the stick. It was sometimes... Um, taking someone aside and having a word with them in a manner that they might respond to. And it demonstrated wisdom to me. Now, when I left school, I, I, I wasn't particularly enamoured with the school or I, I just did what I had to do to get to where I wanted to be. Um, and I think my real education then started up there. I didn't like university either, to be honest. Uh, um, but I learned a lot about people. And I slowly learned about the, the things that have built up in our society. And it was because of Mr. Bean and what he had consistently tried to reinforce in the school, which was very similar to what my parents tried to reinforce at home. Um, it made me realise that, hang on, maybe there's something to all of this. And uh, I never had regrets about school. I'm not, I'm not going back there and saying, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. But I... I just think about this man and how he shaped so many students' lives. And um, I was one of them. And that's the power of good teachers. It's the power of good leaders. And it's not just the responsibility of parents to, to you know, produce good citizens. It, there's a whole range of institutions and people who occupy positions of leadership that can do that. And um, so I'm a t very grateful to him, and I love seeing him now. I mean, you know, I still see him. my kids go to the same school, well, they did, and um, uh, they've got a great headmaster then there too, and uh, my kids have responded to him in a, in a very favourable way. But to get a note from Mr Bean, you know, 30-odd years later, uh, was it made me, it made me, made me very humble uh, and very proud Um and uh, so, yeah, I, I still I still have it. And not for any self-affirmation. I'm just, I'm kind of happy I made Mr. Boone proud. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and are there any uh, public figures that, you know, in the past, perhaps, or present day that you, you feel uh, are a, a bit of an inspiration or an influence? You know, there's, there's, there's lots of them. And, but you go through history and you recognise how few people have, uh, are in the history books, uh, you know, that have made a lasting impact. And so I could go through the, you know, the quintessential political figures, the Thatchers and the, the Reagans and stuff. I could, you know, rip to pieces, you know, the, the Kennedy presidency and, and so on. But one of the, the things, and it was a friend gave me this um, uh, many years ago, gave me a book which was notionally written by Robert, uh, John F. Kennedy, actually, called Profiles and Courage. And it was about people that effectively put their entire political careers on the line over an issue. Now, you could go back through history and say Wilberforce was maybe one of those and stuff, but, but these were people that, that kind of knew this is the right thing to do and it's going to cost me. I'm going to lose my seat or I'm going to lose my friends or I'm going to be abused. And whether it's the abolition of slavery or whether it's you know, sticking up for people's civil rights or, or, or fighting for the rights of the unborn or whatever injustice was there, and you don't have to agree with all of them, right? I think that's inspiring. And I... And, and I also look at a more contemporary figure in John Howard, who was here at Campion a little while ago. And 
during his prime ministership, he must have woken up every day and if he read the papers, he would be horrified by what they wrote about him. And I thought, how can this man do this every single day? Get up and, and, and that gave me a, a perspective on, on what I was entering into and um, uh, thinking, hey, if he can do that, what do I care? You know, as long as my family still love me, my friends like me, um, you know, I'm going to be myself. And so I feel I've never, never compromised that aspect of my personality or, or my belief system. And it's because I've learned that many thousands of people, millions of people have trod the same, a similar path and come out the other side un, uh, unscathed. And um, when you've been in hospital, dealing with hospital food for a year and the TV man won't turn the TV on because of your infection, um, you know, nothing much phases you. It's like, oh, yeah, I can deal with that. Absolutely. Um, oh, my goodness. It's, uh, yeah, that would give you a real perspective. Is, um, do you find, you know, you are a conviction politician in a sense. That means that, controversial, that doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, someone who's, you know, has these, you know, principles and, and won't be compromise which you know i think everyone would think well that's a good quality you know do you find you get respect from unusual quarters amongst the in the political world even though they may not admit it publicly but do they have that sort of grudging respect okay well we know what uh cory bernardi stands for and you know in a sense i respect him that he 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 won't back down do you get a grudging respect or is it sometimes it's more than grudging um uh, but Quite often, and I, I, I will say what I admire in other people is that they believe in something. I, I may absolutely disagree with, with how they're coming about it, but if they're not flip-flopping and, and you know, blowing in the wind and they stick to their guns in the face of adversity, I, I respect that. That's, that's a, a character um, uh, asset that I think is really valuable. And that comes back to me as well. Now, let's not pretend it's all bouquets and, and chocolates. But, uh, you know, people often say, I, I loathe your politics, but you always say what you think. Or um, uh, Nick Xenophon and I are quite good friends, and we don't agree on very much, but we've got terrible sense of humour uh, equally. And, um, you know, I, he, he's always respected that I believe, I, I have my beliefs and he doesn't agree with any of them. But And that's, that strikes up friendships. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's left or right or whatever. We're, we're humans. And some of the best people I've met in the parliament, some of my, I'll say my best mates, if you have political mates, have been on the other side of the chamber. And more often than not, it's been born from an inquiry about them as a human. Because uh, this is a brutal business. And uh, you can have a fight with someone that is a terrible fight but we're professionals and we we accept that but it's got a human toll and often that human toll is about children and 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 spouses and so when someone is struggling you can go to them and say look you know i don't really care about you but how's your wife and how your kids going with it and you know some wonderful wonderful friendships that are still there today even though these people have left the parliament have arisen through those. And, and it is respect. You, you, you respect their confidences. Uh, they respect yours. Um, and uh, uh, that's, I, I just think that's a really healthy part of being a human. And yet there are other people up there who, who do not care. 
and that's um, that's I think part of what makes politics a very unattractive uh, path for many people. Yeah, I mean, it was great you were encouraging our students tonight to, you know, I suppose, think about making a contribution, whether that's in in politics or wherever. But yeah, we need good people in in politics, obviously. To help well, we do, but we need good people everywhere. Yeah. Right? There are so many that that hide their light under a bushel, but. You know, if you're a business person and you're successful, well, it's not about giving back because I think that's that's not a good term. But isn't it incumbent upon you to say, hey, I want to support the organisations or other individuals who are going to be flying the flag for what I believe? You know, it's not just about you and your cosy little world. There is something that's given us all this great benefit and it's called Western civilization. Um, and I want people to get in and fight for that. I want them to fight for it in the universities and in the in the academia where it's sorely needed. You need it in the business community. You need it in politics. I mean, they're all complementary. And if we abandon that arena or that field, then we will lose even more of what makes this country so good. And and I see a diminishing in our humanity as we as we have a very cavalier approach to life and death and. Um, uh, and the innate sense of, of what makes us who we are. Let's move back a bit from politics. Mm. Um, in terms of, again, looking at your influences um, and things that have, um, I suppose, helped mould you into the person you are, are there any books or thinkers that um, that have helped you or in, in, ideas? In various lights there, there have been, if I, if I go through aspects of my life. Like I'm a... Um, I call myself an economic conservative, right? Whatever that means today, you know, but I believe in balanced budgets. I believe in people taking responsibility for themselves and so forth. And so the, the thinking of, you know, this, this great libertarian, Milton Friedman, was something that, that, that stuck with me. Free to Choose was a book that I, I took there. There was um, a, a snippet, and I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone. It was written... It was in The Economist magazine in 1988. I was travelling through Europe and, you know, that's what the nerdy kids did, right? We bought The Economist with our $6 every week. And uh, there was a, uh, a guy, a former editor of The Economist named Nico Colchester had died. And so they put one of his columns in there. Uh, and I read that column and I cut it out and I still have it today. It's framed and it's in on my desk in my office and it's called crunchiness. And basically, Colchester, in 180 words, I mean, I, I don't know how he did it, right, but it's a very short con. But in a very short space of time, described how civilization sort of rise and fall. That when they start, they keep things crunchy. They, they, there's right and wrong, and there's, um, uh, there's consequences, and every decision has uh, you know, a, a reaction and a, and a cause and effect. And then as they evolve and people get complacent and think they've mastered the mysteries of the universe, they get all soggy. And no, no one's to blame for anything anymore and it's not my fault and we can insure against all of these you know, calamities and someone else has to pick up the pieces and until the whole thing, you know, like a soggy biscuit and a cup of tea, it just can't, can't sustain itself. And, and then someone comes in and goes, hey, the problem is we didn't say this was right and this was wrong. And I, that strangely had more of an influence on me. And the very first blog I wrote back in 2009 was about crunchiness and quoting Nico Colchester. Um, so it's not a book. 
But there's something, there's some words that literally changed my life, and I recommend it to everybody that does it. Um, I've always been fascinated with with religious texts, uh, not always specifically the Bible, but people who have who have experienced um, a faith journey. I find that interesting because once again, it's about the human condition. Uh, it's about you know people's journeys through life, and I, I really I really like that. I, I learn a lot from it. Um, uh, what other books were there? I was a big one, a big reader of self-help motivational books, right? You know, the brainwashing stuff. But once again, it was about the stories. The power of telling stories helps people understand important things. And I guess the Bible does that too, yes. doesn't it? It's all about it's parables and stuff, and Jesus did. So all of these things came into play. So I, I reckon I went through fads. You know, there's there's the year of how how can I make more money books, and then there's two years of... You know, how do I motivate myself to be a better person? Book. There's another one about well, what about history? How do I how do I, you know, ascertain this? How do I understand economics? Uh, I went through a period where I refused to read fiction books um, because I thought I'll, I'll educate myself. And then I realised the benefit of fiction books because they free your mind from the day to day stuff. And so. I love reading. I, I just find it, it fascinating, and I love old school books. I, uh, I like looking at them. I've got, uh, I like feeling them. I like you know good craftsmanship, and I like writing. Uh, not books. I'm not that good at those, but I just like writing. I think it's a cathartic experience. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I'd agree. Campion here is all about books and writing, and um, yeah, it's great to have you here and to speak about that. We um, tonight also you, you you said a couple of things that I, I wanted to sort of uh, go back to. One is the idea of freedom, mm. and uh, you spoke a, a little bit about that tension between, say, a libertarian understanding uh, of uh, of politics and a more traditional, I guess, conservative understanding, and the keyword notion of freedom. And the other thing was uh, you didn't mention this phrase original sin or the, the term original sin but you made reference to it in the sense that we're all really a, a conservative recognizes that we're all fallen and we can't really perfect the world because we are fallen mm. and it's a misguided notion perhaps that many share today that without religion i can perfect the world because uh, we're perfectible mm. and it, that's uh, we end up in gulags when that happens so um if you want to just to just speak a bit more about that particularly the idea of freedom and that uh, yeah, well, the libertarian, I mean, at my heart, I'm a libertarian, right? I, I want the maximum amount of freedom for people to self-determine how they want to live their lives and enjoy it. But I also recognise, and it's, it's about humanity, there needs to be structures, there needs to be um, uh, perimeters and, and boundaries that we've learned about those boundaries because of the thousands of years of generational experience. The reason, you know, the church has, has existed and evolved was to remind people about some absolute truths uh, because they haven't changed. Uh, the reason we have you know, constitutions or they're drafted in a particular way is because they've learned what happens if you don't get it right mm-hmm. and so on. The education system and all of these things have, have, have stood the test of time and they've evolved. So I respect those. I don't always agree, you know, if I can put, say that. Sometimes I think, why is that there? That's that's kind of crazy. But later on, as I get a bit smarter, I I, I learn why, um, or someone explains it to me, or I read it in a book. And so the libertarian is going, hang on, we 
if you don't hurt someone else, you should be able to free to do whatever you like. But that's it's not a rational sense, and it's not one that that can be sustained because it fails to observe that humanity is deeply flawed. Mm. All right, it's just the nature of it. If you take the boundaries and the constraints of civil society away from people, mm. they will want more for themselves. Mm. Now, I'm no Marxist, right? Let's understand that. But but people get carried away with their own. Their own lust, their gluttony, their, their you know, this, I'll go through seven, the seven deadly, deadly sins. sins. That's right. But they get carried away with themselves. They overreach every single time. In politics, it happens all the time. Um, you, you you make some achievement, you think, okay, well, next time I'll do this. Or you get some media attention because you've said something a little bit crazy, and then you go, well, I need more. You know, it's like a drug. This is this is what humanity's deep flaws are. I mean, and and whether they manifest themselves in politics or something else, there's got to be something to temper it. Now, I'm lucky. I I respect the institutions that temper them. I, I understand and respect tradition and convention. So it's sometimes the unwritten rules are the ones that, that keep us together. That's the case in the Senate. There's a lot of unwritten rules. And it's every time they're broken, right, the place diminishes. And uh, so temporal advantage by breaking this unwritten conventional rule is always having massive negative consequences and we're dealing with them today. Malcolm Turnbull broke the convention when he insisted upon signed letters to call a party room and things like that. So that, that they're important things. Um, and uh, in the end, I just think that we have to recognise that we have a place in society. It's not all about us. Um, it is there is a greater force at work here, and as soon as you realise that your time here is is infinitesimally small, and very few of us are going to leave any lasting mark on the earth aside from perhaps our own children, and then in three generations they will have forgotten <laughs> all about us as well. Uh, it puts it in perspective, and you go, hang on, let's let's um, let's respect what we want others to inherit, and. I often say to young people in particular, and in citizenship ceremonies, I go, who wants a massive inheritance? Everyone wants to inherit you know, boundless wealth and all this, you know, from some rich uncle who dies and that. And I say, you have all the beneficiaries of the greatest inheritance we could ever have, and that is to live in this country. It is to inherit the values and the, the institutions and the pillars of Western civilization that allow you to be everything you want to be, right, by protecting your freedoms and in turn demanding that you will respect and, and protect the others. And so, you know, we've been gifted something that is, is, is just fantastic. And I don't think enough people understand that. They take it for granted and think it's not my problem. Uh, whereas conservatives not only learn from the past, we're concerned with the future and uh, not in some sort of green nihilistic way or anything else, but just, we just want our children to, to prosper and do better than, than we have in future generations. And um, it's a long winded answer. I'm no, that's, that's that. very good. It's a good segue to give a brief uh, plug to this college because uh, in a sense, that's what we're about. We're a liberal arts college, liberal connected to the word of freedom, obviously. And, and so we believe in the freedom of, of the mind um, and we, we, we have a curriculum that we believe really liberates the mind, gives the mind freedom from, firstly, freedom from 
ignorance of that great tradition, that great inheritance of, of uh, the Judeo-Christian Western tradition. And then that's formed all our institutions, as you say, and has created this great nation. So it frees us from that, but it also frees us for, you know, creating the understanding now, but also you know, creating that future. Well, you want you to know, build upon these build platforms. Upon, yeah, yeah. and, and th- isn't that a great legacy? I, I mean, I'm in awe of your students. Okay. I was introduced to camp in six or seven, maybe eight years ago. No, in fact, it was 2009 so, um, by James Power Sr., who said, you've got to have a look at this. And um, I'm in awe of your students because they're, they're, they know how to argue their case respectfully. They're, they're well-informed. They can call out you know, the nonsense that people like me sometimes uh, cook up and say, well, actually, Corey. Um, but, but they are the, going to be the, the, the torchbearers for, for humanity, I think, going forward because the, the political opponents or, or those who are enemies of the, of the West are seeking to dehumanise us and to, to place us back as just economic units and subservient figures of the state. And we know the dangers of that. And um, I was at the United Nations, which is not some place I'd recommend, by the way, but I was there and I, my kids came over uh, during school holidays and I took them on a tour of the building and I took them to the, this famous um, uh, donation of sculpture by, from the USSR and they kind of weren't really aware. They weren't taught about the USSR and the Soviet Union and the Cold War, and, and they went to a good school. But, you know, I had to explain mm. what it was all about and, and how communism is, is slowly creeping back. And they think it's some sort of... Uh, no, they, they're not my kids, but today, kids think communism is some sort of benign economic system in, in China. And it's not. It's, mm. There's hundreds of millions of people that have died from it. People are still being locked up in the gulags. And, and, and you know, privacy, as we know it, is not happening. Uh, it's, it's a terrible system. And we have to make sure that people understand why it's bad. And it's not just another political system. It's actually something that enslaves every single one of us. And until people can appreciate that, um, uh, again... We, uh, we have a massive battle ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm conscious of the time, but there was one other question that I wanted to raise with you, and it was one that one of our students, in fact, a graduate of uh, the college who was here this evening, he, he wanted to ask you, and I said I'd ask in this uh, podcast. He was too scared, was he? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he, he was struggling to get, get in and ask you this question. But, um, yeah, after, after graduating from here, he went to a... One of the one of the big sandstone universities to an honors program, and he felt um, you know slightly intimidated after coming to a, to Campion. It was a lot smaller and a very different type of program, and the intimidation was more a political intimidation in terms mm. of you know he felt that he he couldn't really express his mind without perhaps receiving some sort of aggression, particularly in the humanities area that he was looking at, and. So he thought, well, I should fight back. I should play by their rules. But then he thought, well, actually, you know, I want to, I want to be civil. I want to respect them as, as human. I don't want to degrade their character or label them. I want to have a civil discussion. And he just felt he couldn't. And he felt that crippling. And he thought, well, I'll ask, uh, I'll ask the senator that question because he's, he's having to deal in you know, a fairly hostile environment. And, you know, and obviously you want some civil discourse and, and politics is tough, as you've hmm. said, and, and a robust discussion. But is that a tension that you feel? Is, um, 
Look, it is a tension because the temptation is always to go that little bit further. Um, most of us, and I say most of us, never want to overstep the boundaries. And in all of us is that little voice that says, no, don't go there, don't go there. Sometimes you make a mistake and you do go there. But um, I try never to make it personal. Uh, I try to make it as factual as I possibly can and as rational and sensible. Now, that's not very effective, unfortunately, because it doesn't fit into a seven-second soundbite. And there are the normal personality issues that are at work in, in politics as well. But you know what? You're never going to win an argument over something that someone has a, a firm opinion on uh, at the time. What I, I've... I, sometimes it's easy to smile and nod and, and you know, <laughs> avoid that. But ultimately, we're in the business of ideas in politics anyway, and you have to advance those ideas. What I, we go back to one of the earlier questions is, is people know I'm not for changing, right? They know um, that I have my views and and I'll listen respectfully to another opinion, but I'll try and dismantle it as much as I possibly can. But then with that comes a belief that you're consistent and so one of the roles that I now have in the Senate is is I try and uphold the dignity of the place which is odd coming from someone who sometimes <laughs> drops the dignity ball occasionally but but you know I, I, I do try and protect the institution and say well hang on this is right and it doesn't matter if it's Labor that's got it wrong or the Liberals or, or the crossbench you know, I'll, I'll say, no, I don't think that's parliamentary or something. And, and a lot of the time it's listened to because I'm not trying to play games in that aspect of, of the life. But when it comes back to a student, look, you're at university. Um, your opponents are generally not going to be particularly respectful. Uh, the question is, how much time do you, do you put into it? Um, uh, I'm, I'm choosing now more and more to use the left's tactics against them, but not in a personal way, but in exposing their their hypocrisy and their duality. So we used to just accept the fact that the Greens would have motions every day in the Senate about abortion and bisexual week and you know, pan-gender this and whatever. And so we kind of go back. We don't put pan-gender motions in, but we talk about the unborn. Uh, we talk about... You know some of the the, the left's favourite causes, terrorist organisations. We we bell the cat on on uh, misogyny in in Islam and and so forth, and they hate that. They hate it, and so so much so they're now trying to limit the number of motions that I can put in. Basically, it's the, the Bernardi rule. Um, uh, you know because they 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 say it's wasting time, but it's not. It's just highlighting how difficult how difficult to rationalise their positions are. So you've got to just find the little niche in which you can work it. Um, and uh, I, I do recommend reading books like R Rules for Radicals by Alinsky, reading books by the left, um, because as soon as you identify their techniques, you know how to counter it. And one of the books I read was Confrontational Politics by a chap, I forget his name, Hal someone or other, a senator from from uh, a state senator from California. Now, it's not literature, all right? It's got typos in it and all sorts of stuff. But I read it, and, and he's a real gun lobbyist, and I'm not a gun lobbyist, but uh, I read it, and it was all about how the left have used their minority numbers 
to, to pretend they're a majority and how conservatives can actually fight back. And I bought a hundred copies of it. And so much so they rang up and said, you know, who, who are you? What are you doing with our books? But because I, it was it was just a, a great insight into into um, uh, the techniques of the left and how you can actually beat them. And if we could get tens of thousands of people uh, following that, it's, it is about respect, but it's also about never letting something go. Um, we will we will push back the tide. Uh, and I think to a certain extent that's starting to happen. Um, you know, the election of Donald Trump was a way of saying something's not working in this country. Um, the the dalliance in Australia with various um, various political organisations, whether it be Xenophons or Palmers or you know the um, Hanson Party or whatever, suggests to me that that they're looking for a vehicle to push back as well because things are, are failing them. Um, and I, whether I'm that vehicle or not, I want to equip people with as much information and confidence to push back in however they feel comfortable. So whether that be saying something at a dinner party and you know not being scared to do it, or whether it be marching in protest or going on a podcast or joining the IPA, whatever floats your boat, you know, get involved and, and push back. And if people like me can take some of the heavier blows to make it easier for other people to come through, then, you know, I'm happy to do that because uh, at this point my wife still loves me, my kids still love me, um, and the dog loves me when I feed him and, uh, you know, I'm in a very happy space personally. Well, I like you too, Cole. Hey, good, eh? I'm feeling good. Look at that. <laughs>